Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. How do you start a business as a foreigner in Japan? What's it like to grow a business as a foreigner in Japan? These are the two questions I get asked the most, not only by our non Japanese listeners who make up 80% of Disrupting Japan's audience, but also by our Japanese fans as well. And you know, I've always found it hard to answer that question because, you know, it's just such a big question that it's hard to get your head around it. It's hard to know how to even start to answer it. Well, today, we'll be talking a lot about exactly that. We'll be sitting down with Jordan Fisher, the CEO and co founder of Zehitomo. Now, Zehitomo is an online marketplace for offline services, and we'll dive deeper into their business model during the show. But really, we talk a lot about how Westerners, or at least Jordan, this one particular Westerner, approaches doing business in Japan. Both as an individual and as a company, there are certain things that you can get away with and some things that you just can't. There are certain advantages you'll have over your Japanese competition, and there's certain disadvantages that you might not be able to overcome. But you know, Jordan tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So, I'm sitting here with Jordan Fisher, the founder and CEO of Zehitomo, which is a marketplace for matching professionals with those who want to hire them. <laughs> so, thanks for sitting down with me. Yeah, great to be here, Tim. Thank you. So, I mean, I gave like a really brief description of what Zehitomo is. So, maybe you can explain it a little better than, than I did. Sure, sure. In a nutshell, it's, it's what you said. We're a marketplace for local services.、Um, I think. A lot of people don't really you know, immediately click when you say local services, what that actually means. And、uh, I generally summarize it by saying that it's the jobs that happen offline, not the ones that happen online. So think about your photographer, your plumber, your personal trainer, all these scenarios where you're connecting directly with a vendor, usually a small business or a freelancer, offline. And、uh, as opposed to maybe a programming job or a design task or a legal paperwork that could be done through some sort of online crowd works or something、yeah. like that. So, are, are most of the services offered on Zehitomo being offered by professionals, or is it more like TaskRabbit, where there are people who are just coming in and helping you assemble IKEA furniture? Yeah, yeah, no, great question. So,、uh, that is all, one of the ways that we differentiate ourselves. So, we are a platform for professionals.、Uh, the average job size is you know, closer to around $500 or g o m a y e n And you know, when we look at that, we look at the LTV of the job. So, a lesson might be a recurring service and kind of looking at average getting hired several times, et cetera. But these are you know, professionals that do this job for their living.、Uh, some of them, it is fukugyo or there's kind of second work. Um, and when it comes to some of the lesson related categories, but the vast majority、uh, are actually small businesses,、uh, and then followed by、uh, you know, many freelancers in the case of you know, like photographers or personal trainers and stuff like that. Okay. So, I mean, that, that simplifies things because you can expect a bit of professionalism from that side of your marketplace. Exactly. And I think you know, as you know, people talk about the gig economy and how you know, AI is going to automate everything, but I think when it comes to local services and really the high end. 
not the higher end jobs, but the jobs that you really need a professional or you know a specialist to take care of. You know, those are the things that I don't see, or I don't think anybody sees us automating away anytime in the near future. Well, yeah, and there, there are some things that just can't be done online. If you need someone to photograph your wedding or, or yes. paint your apartment. Exactly, yeah. And I think one of the, the really frustrating things about local services is that it's just a really, really inefficient and non-transparent market. So if you wanted to hire somebody to, you know, to take photographs of your wedding or to hire somebody to renovate your kitchen... Um, you have no idea how much that's going to cost or who to actually ask, mm. right? Um, and generally what happens in Japan is you go through a series of different agencies that all take cuts in between, and you'll you know, finally arrive at some sort of package solution, which may or may not have been what you're originally looking for, right? Wedding venues will usually charge you around two grand for uh, a wedding photographer where they'll get paid around $300 in the end, right? Like 85% cut. It's ridiculous. <laughs> You know, agencies, uh, my, my personal experience uh, and I've given before is when I bought a place in Japan and ordered, um, this was a few years ago, and our place was near the train tracks. And so we wanted to, you know, soundproof the windows just to make it extra sound tight for you know, myself. You know, I just had a newborn daughter. And we spent, um, you know, this was, you know, a major real estate developer in Japan. Uh, they have their own kind of concierge desk and everything to kind of, you know, suit the place up as you need. And it took us a month to get a quote for soundproofing the windows, right? And we're based in Tokyo, they're based in Tokyo. They people come down from Osaka to measure the place, right? Like, right. Um, you're going through the layers of layers. It was just so inefficient. In the end, it took a month, and the price that came back was close to 40 grand. Well, you know, Japan is famous for these kind of inefficiencies. Hasn't the internet done a lot to to change that? I mean, aren't there specialty like wedding photography sites and specialty kitchen renovation yeah. sites that are supposed to have cut through that nonsense? Uh, you would have thought so. So I think <laughs> in Japan, everybody loves what's called tesudio, right? like margin. And that's why the recruiting business is still very much a margin business yeah. here. Anybody that will, can continue to take that will generally try to continue to take that. The bottom line is it doesn't actually add any value to either side, right? If, you're, if the problem you're trying to solve is how do I pay, you know, make a payment and then you take you know, margin off the top of that, that, that makes sense, right? You're facilitating a need. But in the case of local services, um, you don't actually add any value to the requester or to the professional by taking a cut in between. Well, so, so is it like all of these like niche vertical marketplaces online. Is it a case that these marketplaces are also playing the same game and trying to get a high margin, a high commission, or just people aren't taking to those sites? There, there's no, I think there's no good solution out there right now. And what you have, if you look at the evolution of maybe local services, you could say in Japan there's something called town page, which is very similar to the yellow pages overseas. Uh, and then you would have maybe the town page online, right? And that's where we are right now. <laughs> And there's some sites that'll do maybe, you know, a bit more matching for C2C jobs or have, you know, a list of trainers. But at the end of the day, you still have a list. You're still going through the list. You're filtering the list. You're calling up the list one by one. You're trying to become an expert in whatever it is that you need. In my case, I had to become an expert in trying to understand how soundproofing glass. Uh, so it got more convenient in that I don't have to look through a book. I can look online. But one of the real challenges is that it is, you have very custom requirements. But when it comes to ordering a service, you need a custom set of requirements. And you don't know what those are unless you're actually a subject matter expert. And so when I hire a photographer for an event, I might not know that I would need to tell them if it's indoor or outdoor because the lighting would change based on that. What we try to do is we try to make it as simple as possible to actually answer those questions so that vendors have all the information they need. Well, well tell me about your customers. So on the client side, 
Are they mostly uh, consumers? Are they businesses? Who, who's using it on yeah. that side? Um, yeah, it is mostly consumers. We do have um, a number of businesses that we haven't even really started targeting yet. I think in the future there'll be more of that. Uh, but right now it's really people that are searching for what they need. And usually that's consumers, but businesses search for, you know, when they need something done as well, uh, time to time. But we're, we're talking a lot about photography as an example. Is that the most popular? What are the most popular services on Zehitomo? Sure, sure. So I'd say uh, photography is one of them, uh, but actually one of the most popular areas is lessons. So oh. personal trainers, piano teachers, yoga instructors, things like these are, are surprisingly popular. Um, and I'd say the largest growing segment is uh, jobs around the home. So thinking of, you know, I need to replace my tatami flooring. I need to replace my blind screen. I need to repair my air conditioner. Things like this. Okay, so, so skilled jobs around the home. Not, yes, okay. yes, yes, ah. yes. Skilled jobs around the home. Uh, and the other one that's pretty popular is, uh, is like pet sitting and things like this. So it is pretty diverse, actually. We don't have like the top three is, you know, 50% or anything like that. It's, it, we have an, uh, 500 categories that we've launched. And I'd say when you look at it in, in segments, you can say, okay, there are some that stand out, like the pit sitters, the photographers, but lessons overall is very popular, particularly personal training. Well, actually, before we dive into the, the details of the business model, I want to back up a bit and, and talk about how you and your partner launched this back in 2016, right? I think we only launched the service in 2016, but we formed the company and we had been talking about it and trying to work on it in stealth mode since 2015. Okay. So, um, That's a while. Yeah. Now, now, you and your co-founder, James, are both Americans. One of the things my listeners asked me about like, the most <laughs> is what's it like starting a startup in Japan as a foreigner, which is such a ridiculously broad question that it's, it's kind of hard to get your, your head around it. But being a foreigner starting a startup, what things did that make harder and what things did that maybe make easier? Yeah. Yeah. So I would start by saying that it's not easy to, for anybody to start a company in Japan or arguably anywhere in the world, even if it's listed number one on easiest, maybe the processing is easy and whatnot, but you know, it, it takes a lot of commitment. It's a lot of to, work. To that. A lot of commitment, a lot of work. And, you know, starting the company versus running it and growing it and scaling and actually doing something meaningful, you know, they all mean very different things at different stages. Um, but it's, yeah, I think being a foreigner doesn't change the, you know, the, the levels of commitment that are needed or anything else. Um, there are some unique problems maybe, you know, on making sure that you have the right visa, um, around making sure that, for example... Uh, investors will, you know, treat you seriously and not as a flight risk uh, from your country. Yeah, let, let's talk about that. So, in raising money, what kind of questions or pushback did you get from VCs? Um, so, I'd say it wasn't a very, it wasn't very vocal. Like, oh, you're not Japanese enough. Uh, myself and James, we had both worked in, you know, lived and worked in Japan for 25 years between the two of us, right? So, we had a track record of being and working and delivering results in Japan in a domestic market. So. And I think that alleviated some of the concerns, but that said, to still run a company in Japan, um, we realized this as well. Starting the company was one of our biggest weaknesses. We didn't have another Japanese member on our uh, kind of senior leadership. So did you get, I mean, when I started my companies in the past, investors frequently asked me if I had or was planning to have a Japanese co-founder. Yeah, yeah. Did, did you ever get those kind of questions? Um, sure. I think at that time we had already, you know, we bootstrapped for a while at the beginning. Uh, and so I think... The question wasn't, are you going to have a Japanese co-founder, but um, how are you going to make sure it doesn't turn into a, a gaijin product? 
Um, actually, 500 Startups, who was our first VC that invested in us, uh, you know, they as well had that same uh, concern. But the wonderful thing about them is they actually introduced uh, Satoshi, who joined us as our CSO and helped alleviate that concern for them to later on invest. Yeah, I mean, it is something that I think, you know, being a foreigner, running a startup has its advantages as well. Uh, you can use your gaijin power when needed. You can, you know, you, you can... What does that mean? Use your gaijin power when needed. You know, I think there's a lot of times when it might not be, um, you know, socially correct or, you know, maybe a little bit frowned upon if you take certain approaches that are, you know, cutting the corners or, you know... Well, can you give me a, a specific example of something that, that you or your partner did that maybe um, a Japanese couldn't get away with or would have had to do a different way? I'd say even just approaching a few of our first clients, um, I'd say the way that we did it and just the type of sales that we could do um, was, I'd say the type of sales that you do as a foreigner is very different from that as you do as a Japanese. And I think you get interpreted differently well, how, by... How so? Mm, um, I'd say the expectations are different depending on who you're talking to, and that can be a plus or a minus. But uh, it allows us to get right to the chase much more quickly, whereas if somebody Japanese would do that, uh, and I don't mean to kind of stereotype or generalize. Oh, no, 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 we're talking in really but, broad terms yeah. here. Um, but it might be considered rude or consistent to kind of jump right to the heart of the matter so quickly, uh, as opposed to maybe developing a bit more of a relationship. It might be uncomfortable for a Japanese person to do that. It might be uncomfortable for the other company to see, are these guys all right? But as a foreigner, you can, you know, you can kind of ignore all the social constructs to an extent and you can go after what you think is appropriate as long as it's, it's logical and you can really connect with the other person. So like getting straight to the point, does this mean just uh, being able to be more direct in sales meetings or being able to be more direct in more of a social situation where yeah. Japanese would expect to do more kind of small talk? I'd say anywhere where there's a clear... Um, goal. And so if that's a sales and we're talking with a company and saying, hey, partner with us to do this, if we're talking to uh, an investor saying, hey, like, let's make this happen and being persistent. Um, and I think those, I mean, it just comes a lot more naturally. I think we're, I, I think we can get a pass on a lot of things that we wouldn't otherwise. You know, I've, I've seen that too over the years. I mean, I, I think that on one hand, the Japanese language and Japanese so, social protocol is ridiculously complex. But on the other hand, I find Japanese businessmen, Japanese people in general, are incredibly forgiving and tolerant as long as you're making a sincere effort to yes. do it right. Yes, 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 yes. And, and I think that's very important as well. And I think, you know, we get an extra pass from just being, you know, foreigner and making that effort, but the effort does need to be sincere, right? I'd say there's not as much hustling like in, in Japan, whereas if you go to, you know, China or the States or other places, you kind of feel a lot more of that business hustle. I think that's definitely true. Uh, there and there needs to be a lot more of it here. Yeah, yeah. But I, again, I think that is something that foreigners can get away with socially easier than Japanese can. That yeah. that that hustle always being on and always kind of being in sales mode. Yeah. If you're not overtly rude about it, yeah, it's just well, he's very passionate about his company. Whereas a Japanese CEO, it might be well, you know, he should have really known yeah. better than to. Yeah, and, and so it's, it's tricky nuances, right, how you balance employees, but it definitely makes sense for any company, and, and Satoshi has been a huge asset uh, for us to really take that balanced approach, right, when things seem like it's going too much in one direction, kind of make sure that, okay, yes, we are, a, you know, we are a stable company, I know there's some investors that told us it was just, like, comforting having Satoshi at the, the table. Well, I mean, it does make sense that if you're, you're addressing a Japanese market, you, you want to have Japanese people on the team. Yes. 
So what about in terms of running and growing the company? Do you think being foreign founded has helped or hurt you in recruiting staff or getting customers, either the professionals or the clients on the platform? Yeah, um, I think it's helped. We definitely had our share of learnings. You know, I'd say there's more struggles of being, you know, as first time founders and learning a lot of things the, the hard way as opposed to it being, you know, foreigners trying to run a company. I would say that I think being foreigners running the company has allowed us to move quite fast, has allowed us to really apply a lot of the best practices and principles from Silicon Valley or other different kind of startup you know, like, cultures. Like what kind of, what kind of things? Um, so I'd say it's very easy for people to talk about being data-driven, to talk about fail fast, to talk about um, you know, really discussing and kind of you know, arguing with one another. But if you don't have a culture that supports that from the, the top and actually does that, it's, it's very different, I think, when you have, you know, maybe Japanese leadership that's not used to that for their entire career versus people that come from, and maybe not even being foreigners, but just come from a bit more of an international or foreign um, background. Almost all the Japanese startups are saying the same thing. Mm. Um, the, you know, fail fast, fail, fail forward is a, a phrase I, I detest <laughs> with a burning passion, but we'll get into that on, uh, some other time. Yeah. But... Uh, do you feel that being a foreign-led startup gives you more credibility to make those claims? That the, the staff, that potential employees will see this as, like, these guys are much more likely to, to walk the talk? Yeah. I would say, you know, spend some time with our team. Spend time with a dozen other random Japanese companies that say something similar. And you'll probably feel a lot of differences, right? Just, I mean, it's possible there's some Japanese companies that execute this very well. But, um, you know, from many of the companies that I've seen and that I've talked to and, you know, people that we, as we're recruiting and hiring and talk to many people as well, uh, I think there's often a big gap between the values that a company puts out and what they actually follow internally. And that's not specific to Japan. I think we, uh, I'm not really maybe getting the heart of your question, but I think Maybe being foreigners, it gives us a little bit more credibility from the beginning that we actually mean what we're saying as we talk about these principles that are you know, much more commonly used overseas, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and How, How's that been reflected in your staffing? So what percentage of your company is foreign versus what percentage Japanese? Yeah. So right now we are growing our sales team quite aggressively, and the sales team is by and far Japanese. There's a lot of people that talk about wanting to work in a more international environment, but actually coming to work in an international environment, they're not really actually ready for that. So what I can see that happening, but like yeah. what what are their misconceptions? What what surprises so, them? I think the it's not so much as what they're surprised about, it's just being being stricken by the reality of it. So say you work in a very domestic company and you're like, I want to go work in an international company because it's gonna be great, I'm gonna be free, I can do all these things, I'm not gonna have the ceiling over my head, and then you go actually work in one and you're thrown into the middle of the ocean, and you're like, you're free to swim. All of maybe the juniors that you would have had. So, all so of can the... you give me an example of, of someone who came in with those expectations, yeah. and what was the reality, and, and why did they leave, and how did they leave? So we've had people, for example, uh, so at Zaytemo, what we do is we have everybody do a trial for at least one month first before converting somebody to, to full-time. Um, and when we go full-time, we're... You know, very Western about it. We give them equity. We give them, you know, the you know, we want everybody to feel like owners of the company. But because it's not always a perfect fit for everybody in terms of culture, we can talk about it. But the best way is to actually try working together. You know, many people will realize like, okay, so I have this very, you know, this hard objective, right? I need to do something that is different from how I've done things to date. 
or one common mistake I would say I've seen is just people trying to work very hard to achieve it, but not working very smart. We make it very clear it's not about the hours, but even still, you know, people can say, oh, well, I'll just, you know, fall back to just working very hard and, you know, that, that will be, you know, I will, I'll be given good performance as a, as a result of that. To achieve something that's, you know, to 10x whatever you're trying to do, it's relatively easy to maybe, you know, two or three X something, right? You can just you know, improve the processes, you can work a little harder, whatever it may be. It's quite hard to 5x something. And I'd say it's incredibly hard to 10x something. That's exactly why you really need to think outside of the normal constraints of what you do and reinvent what you're achieving. And I mean, this is, you know, the 10x methodology is, is not something that we've made up or is unique, right? You know, you mentioned before you were, uh, you always bring on people and you have like a one month trial period before you bring them on full time. Yeah. That makes sense when you're recruiting from a pool of like freelancers yep. or someone that can like work part time in the, the evenings. But doesn't that limit your ability to recruit from someone who's got a full time sales job, for example? Yeah. Um, I'd say there's, you know, as a startup, one thing that's great is we can be very, very flexible. Right. So we've had people maybe just take a couple week holiday and try working this for a couple weeks oh, okay. and saying, you know, OK, it seems like it'll work out. Right. We've All had. Right. Um, people that will, you know, on the development, maybe start with some projects on the nights and weekends and, you know, make sure that we can work well together and stuff. Obviously, if it's sales needs during the day. Okay. One of the things I found interesting about Zekitomo, something you do very differently from all the other similar marketplaces, is that you guys don't handle the payments at all. Yeah. Um, it's an unusual choice. So why did you decide to do it that way? Yeah. It wasn't intuitive to us either at first, but the more we were doing it, the more we realized that this was the right uh, way. And handling the payment is a great way to stay in between the transaction. So for something that happens online, like take um, Upwork.com, for example, which is a platform where you can hire you know, developers or designers or people remotely. They will stay in between and they will charge a percentage, but they're actually adding value through the, through the lifetime of your relationship, right? They will take, you know, screenshots every 10 minutes of the developer. They will handle the NDA documents, right? They will handle the, the payments and the processing and automatically calculating the hours, right? So I'm happy to pay an extra X percentage to them for managing all that, mm-hmm. and that's valuable for me. In the case of local services, you're meeting the professional offline. If you're going to hire a personal trainer once a week, okay, you met the next week, what's your incentive to go through somebody else that's going to take you know, a 20 or 30% margin. So the fundamental business model is uh, you're, you're selling leads? Yes. Okay. Correct. Staying in between and just providing like an agency solution and trying to get people to match and then trying to stay in between where we're not actually adding value is just for our benefit. Whereas structuring it as a lead generation platform means that when vendors bid on jobs, it's a natural quality filter at the same time. It's a very clean model. Yes. Yeah. Very clean. We don't have to worry about all the operations that the professionals are much better at than we are. And on the platform, will you? Is it a one-to-one match, or is if the client wants to get three different quotations from three different photographers, you'll sell that lead three times? Um, up to five professionals can bid on one job. Ideally, we would actually have three replies for every single job. I think you know when you have one or two, it just becomes binary. You don't know if this person's good or this person's bad. Um, if you have three, you can get a real sense of the market and what's fair. We're not quite there, to be honest. I think some categories and areas are much more popular, and we do have three, four, five applies uh, per job. But there's other areas where, you know, if you look for that belly dance instructor in Naganoken, um, <laughs> you're we, lucky to find that one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so you know, our real challenge right now is building up the is building up the liquidity to handle many of these other uh, cases and areas. But 
Um, you know, we think once it goes beyond five, you're not getting that much more value. From what we can tell and from the information that we have, uh, three is the biggest jump. And after that, there's not that much more value by having more choices. And in fact, having too many choices can just lead to, you know, confusion, yeah, yeah. confusion, that much of a harder time. Yeah, I can see that that business model as a whole, it makes it much cleaner. Yeah. But how do you handle pricing? How do you determine what to charge of the commissions? Because as you mentioned before, for one wedding photographer might be charging $100 and another one might be charging $1,000. So I think there's two parts of it. One is that we really try to get the right information to tell the pros. So in the case of a wedding photographer, we don't ask this for the majority of, of categories, but because the range can change so much, we ask them what their budget is, right? Uh, and what type of quality of, of pro that they're looking for. And as such, there's some professionals that are only interested in certain types of jobs. And if it's a more expensive budget, it's a more expensive lead. We basically calculate the LTV or the lifetime value that we assume the, you know, would work out for the pro if they were hired. So in case of it's a recurring job, we can say, okay, on average, you're going to get hired for a personal trainer job five times. So right? you sort of have to reverse engineer their businesses to figure it, out what you can charge them. Sure. It, exactly. And so you know, maybe sometimes they'll just get hired once, maybe sometimes they'll get hired for years. But we can make assumptions on that and say, okay, if this job is worth $500 to you, then and maybe there's a... Maybe you have to bid 10 times to get hired once on average, then, uh, okay, it should cost 500 yen to, or $5 to apply. Okay, I, I can see why that's a really unique value proposition on the supply side. Um, shifting to the demand side. So there are a lot of freelancing sites and crowdsourcing sites yeah. and uh, niche sites for photography and what have you in Japan. So what did you do to stand out from the crowd? Yeah. So I guess one of the biggest differentiators, again, is that we're looking after local services. And so, yeah, so there's many vertical players, right? Somebody who specializes in photography, right? It's people that specialize in other things. And I think for us looking at the market and how we can add the most value, the demand from everybody is, uh, is getting new clients. And that's the number one kind of you know, concern. Um, I think this solves it much better for them because they're earning their own business. They can keep their own repeat, et cetera. I, I understand the advantage once you get them on your site as, mm-hmm. a, as a process. But when you were starting from, from nothing with zero traffic or maybe just your, your first job for yourself, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, wedding photography, these other services, you know, English language instruction, these are expensive keywords to be bidding on. These are, mm-hmm. you know, these are competitive spaces. So how did you attract consumer interest? How did you let people know that you existed? So at the beginning, uh, yes, it was very hard. And I think, you know, we went to our friends, our friends of friends. We invited everyone to our Facebook page. Uh, we say, hey, we're doing this. We have, you know, this great way, you know, if you want to hire your, you know, your photographer, et cetera. But I think one of the things that we realized with local services is that it's not like this sticky experience where it's like, oh, today I'm going to hire a photographer, tomorrow I'm going to hire a personal trainer, on Thursday I'm going to hire my soundproofing specialist, right? It's, you have these needs when they arise. The best is really coming from search. And we found that when people search for something and they need it, uh, that's why our strategy, I think, is, is no secret we've been really, you know, building out our SEO I think it's much easier for when you look at repeat and stuff like that to say, hey, we can be the everything store instead of, you know, one category or a couple categories. Now, see, that, I find this really interesting. The, the debate about whether to go narrow and deep yep. and, or broad and, and shallow. I don't know if there is a right answer, but the case for narrow and deep seems to make more 
intuitive sense, right? You can put all your money into targeting a niche, buying specific keywords, building up a, a, a niche brand. It seems like an easier strategy to execute. Yeah. So what made you decide to go broad instead? So I think when you look at marketplaces, exactly as you say, there's two different approaches. You can go horizontal or you can go vertical. And I think actually, if you look at how things are in say 10 years from now, uh, I think it will be both. And I think it's just, it's just so mind-bogglingly complicated that it doesn't exist right now. And every category is different and everything is different. But you know, local service is, again, one of the most inefficient markets out there. As an industry, it's as big as food. But the online penetration is seen to be around 2.5%. Before, we were talking about that whole fail fast, fail forward nonsense. <laughs> now, I think it's a bunch of macho bullshit, but yeah. it's another discussion. Um, but I noticed that you hired a Koki. Yes. From, from Let It Be. Yes, yes. So he was on the show a couple of years ago. Uh, his startup, while incredibly progressive and well-intentioned, didn't work out. You hired him. Yes. And I'm curious, do you think that Japanese startup founders have embraced the concept of learning through failure mm. as much as the foreign founders, or at least you and your co-founder? Have? So Koki is amazing, right? He's, I think he's, he's been through it. He's experienced that. Yeah, um, he did really a really smart guy. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think he's definitely the exception, not the norm in Japan still. You, know, you learn as much as the energy you put into something. Right, and so I think when you start up a company, you're really putting in all your energy, generally. Oh yeah, I mean, there, there's no, there's no doubt that even running an unsuccessful startup yeah. is an intense education. Yes, yes. Um, you you come out of that with with skills. Yes. But do you feel that the Japanese startup founders that you speak to a lot are are that they recognize that that they they appreciate the skills of even another startup founder who has failed. Anybody who makes it to that status of startup founder, I think, realizes and appreciates and recognizes that. <laughs> okay, Jordan, listen, before we wrap up, mm. I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. If I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, any aspect of the society, the legal system, the way people think in their heart of hearts, anything at all, what would you change? If I could do anything in Japan, I would want everybody in Japan to feel like they have that magic wand and they can actually inflict some sort of change. You know, it's one of the more fundamental kind of issues still deep rooted in society is being you know, afraid to take some of the risks, afraid to jump off and, and be that you know, freelancer or start your own business or whatever it may be. You know, some things we can wait for other people to influence change in the government. Sometimes we can, you know, wait for other companies to solve our needs. But for everybody to feel like they have the, the, the power to influence change. That's an interesting way of putting it. So I've had a lot of people talk about, you know, fear of failure, a risk aversion, but not quite the way you did. Mm. So do you feel like there's sort of um, like a fatalism where people just feel like, oh, I shouldn't try because my efforts won't matter? Um, so I'd say in Japan, well, at least compared to the States, I'd say people are less optimistic on many things. In, in the States, regardless of what's happening, you know, in, in the news and politics and everything else, you know, you still have kids that say, I want to grow up and, you know, be president, or I want to grow up and be number one on this team, and, and we're going to 
you know, our sports team's expectations are, of course, that we're number one at everything. We are ridiculously optimistic people. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, whereas in Japan, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, you know, we got, you know, we got third, right? Like, this is like a big <laughs> celebration, right? Or, you know, and, and yes, if you look at the track record, maybe that's something big. But I think, you know, people do, you know, celebrate a lot of small wins. The expectations are different from how they are, you know, overseas. But... Um, a lot of places people have, I don't want to say given up, but it, it kind of seems that way, right? Like, who's the last kid that you've spoken to that says, I want to grow up and be prime minister? I want to grow up and, and change Japan, right? I, I think you're right. Yeah, I, I think a lot of, a lot of Japanese are, are far too reasonable and pragmatic yes. for their own good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so I think, you know, it, it comes down to being hungry or having that hustle of really thinking that you can invoke that change. But I think, you know, when you ask the, this magic wand question to myself or other entrepreneurs, you know, we can think about that because we, we think that we can influence change and we think that we have an idea of what we do want to change. And I think just everybody having a bit more of that mindset would be really, really healthy. Do you think it's changing? I mean, we certainly see a lot more startups, but, but what you're talking about is much broader than that. Mm-mm-mm. I think there is a correlation between the, the mindset and the rise of startup. But yeah, I mean, when I talk to you know, college students now versus 10 years ago, it's, it's very different in terms of their mindsets, in terms of where they want to go to work, what they want to do with their lives. It's, um, you know, sooner or later, I think it's, it's only going to get there more and more. Freelancing is going to become more and more prevalent. People are going to have more and more options in their careers. Uh, people are more and more options in what they want to do. Um, and I hope for Japan's sake as well. I mean, there's so many incredibly talented people here. Um, and not everybody is really living out their, their full potential. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're right. There is, there is something kind of in the air. A year and a half ago, I, I turned down a job in San Francisco because I, I, I think the next 10 years are going to be far more interesting in Japan than they are in San Francisco. Yeah. Now, the last 10 years were far more interesting in San Francisco, <laughs> without a doubt. But it's, it's very unique timing. Mean, and because it is still hard and there are still these challenges, that's why... Is, is you're starting to see some of the people, you know, more and more people get involved. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that takes time. And by the time that it's, it's very easy and it's, it's obvious, everybody's already doing it. Well, excellent. And um, listen, Jordan, thanks for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. Thank you very much, Tim. And we're back. You know, if you ask three different Western startup founders what it's like to run a startup in Japan you'll get three very different answers. I've been seeing the gap between Western and Japanese startup founders rapidly closing over the past few years. But Jordan, who's on the ground rapidly growing his startup, sees it as very much alive, sees this gap as very much a real thing. And that one of Zehitomo's primary advantages in the Japanese market is the ability to understand and execute Western startup strategies better than their Japanese competition. Many foreign companies enter the Japanese market with proprietary technology or a strong brand, but in a sense, this is using business process as an advantage. Zehitomo's approach to selling leads rather than taking a commission is a very interesting one. And it's one that's quite uncommon in online marketplaces. But it makes a lot of sense when the marketplace is not selling a product that will be used again and again. Rather than spending resources building out the perfect workflow for kitchen remodeling or wedding photography, Zehitomo can focus on building a brand and attracting more customers. 
That said, their choice to go broad and sell everything, rather than to go narrow and focus on one market, is a risky one. Building a brand around something like plumbing or home renovation will always be easier than building a brand around something as abstract as local services. But Zehitomo is clearly doing something right, as their increasing volumes and revenues show. One thing I do want to clarify, however, is that the online marketplace business is a lot richer than what was implied during our interview. Japan has moved past the era of town pages and yellow pages directories a long time ago. And there are online marketplaces in almost every conceivable vertical and a lot of horizontal marketplaces as well. Of course, cost and quality vary. And there is always room for a new startup to come along and do things better. Oh, and by the way, if you're interested in how to do business in Japan as a foreigner, I've got some great news for you. Disrupting Japan's big fourth anniversary party and live podcast will be happening on September 13th at Super Deluxe in Roppongi. We'll have Paul Chapman, the CEO of Money Tree, Jason Winder, the CEO of Make Leaps, and Casey Wall, CEO of Wall and Case, talking about how to start and grow a business as a foreigner in Japan. These are three successful foreign entrepreneurs who took three very different paths to growing their company here. So I guarantee you it's going to be a great discussion. And of course, a great deal of wine, beer, and conversation will flow after that discussion. You really want to be there. So check out DisruptingJapan.com or our LinkedIn and Facebook groups for more information. I hope to see you there. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.